You may be seated. Well, yeah, so Moy and I had a little miscommunication. That was my bad about the uh, children's sermon. I thought I was going to be doing the children's sermon. and uh, But I, w- I won't be here in two weeks for the next uh, children's sermon. So whoever's doing it, if you want to steal this idea, you can, you can totally do it. But I was going to talk to the kids about... Uh, excitement and anticipation for something coming up, something big coming up, and not being able to sleep the night before. You know, whether it's Christmas Eve or, um, you know, maybe grandparents coming over or first day of school, something, some big event happening and being so excited that you're not able to sleep. And I remember probably about fourth or fifth grade, uh, my dad was going to take my sister and I to the Wisconsin Dells, and we were going to go to Noah's Ark for the first time. I just was so excited. I couldn't get to sleep. I, I mean, I was probably only up, up until like maybe 10 o'clock. But it felt like, you know, it felt like midnight or 2 in the morning. And it just felt like I was never going to fall asleep. And the morning was never going to come. And when we begin this Advent season, that word anticipation or excitement, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking forward to. And I think there really couldn't be a more fitting text for this morning as we kick off Advent than Isaiah chapter 40. And we've been going through the book of Isaiah. There's a lot going on here. There's, it's a huge book, 66 chapters, and we are not able to you know, preach through verse by verse because it would probably take us two years to cover the whole book. And so we've been skipping some, some chunks uh, or, you know, kind of talking about them but not looking at every verse as we've been going through. But to kind of catch us up, get us up to speed with where we're at here, it's just going to take a little bit of a setup of the context to get us up to speed. And we've been talking about Isaiah kind of breaking down into three different parts. So chapters 1 to 39 is the first part. And these three parts, I'm kind of going to relate them to past, present, and future. And I'll explain what that means as we go along here. But we spent the last 10 weeks looking at chapters 1 through 39, where Isaiah has been prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, He's been giving a message about judgment, how God is going to come and judge the people for their sins. He's also talked about how God is going to judge the surrounding nations, and eventually God is going to judge the whole earth. And then mixed in with that, there's been some prophecies, some future declarations about a coming king, about Emmanuel, uh, the child who would be born, whose name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He would reign forever on the throne of David. And then, then we have, so we've talked about in the prophets, there's this idea of judgment, and then there's a promise of restoration. So there were promises of restoration that are kind of tied in with the coming of this king who's going to reign in righteousness. righteousness. And then last week we looked at uh, chapters 36 to 39 to kind of close out this whole section. And we saw last week uh, Sennacherib's army, the Assyrian army, comes up. They're at the walls of Jerusalem. They're about to invade. All these things are going on, all these messages going back and forth. And then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, cries out to the Lord for the Lord to deliver Jerusalem, to deliver the people from the Assyrians. And the angel of the Lord comes and basically wipes out the whole Assyrian army and Jerusalem is is safe. Chapter 39, Hezekiah welcomes uh, in some messengers from Babylon and he shows them his house and all his riches. 
then Isaiah goes in and says, you know, this wasn't a good thing. Uh, basically, like you're, the people are going to be carried away into Babylon, into exile, and the temple is going to be destroyed. And that those events um, are are kind of future looking, but. All those things in chapters 1 to 39, they, they all occur within about 60 years, uh, during, all during Isaiah's lifetime. And so the original readers of Isaiah would have been reading those events, they would have been reading Isaiah's prophecy, and all those events would have been past. They would have already happened when, once this is all written. That was all in the past. So that's 39. The next section is chapters 40 to 55, which starting today and the next five weeks, so the, the five weeks of Advent, we'll be looking at chapters 40 through 55, and that is kind of related to the present. And then chapters 56 to 66 are the first, will be the first two weeks of the new year, and uh, that's kind of future looking, so that's very fitting as we begin a new year. And then just kind of looking at this transition between chapters 39, 1 to 39, and then 40 to 55, we're kind of going from past to present. Uh, and so when we say present, uh, we're, I mean that the, the people who are in exile, who this message is written towards, uh, written to, they are the, they're the audience of this message versus chapters 40 to 55. It's the people who are in exile. And so when Isaiah wrote it, it was, a, it was a future message, but now these people are here in exile. Again, this is the years like 586 to 516. They were in exile for, for 70 years. For them, this was a present message. So again, Isaiah's writing it as a, a future message, but they're sitting here in the present reading this message about what God has to say. And so there's about a 100-year gap between uh, chapter 39 and chapter 40, the, the carrying out of the judgment that was promised in 39 doesn't happen uh, until 586 when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is burned and, and people are carried away. So again, there's this cycle of, there's this theme of judgment and restoration. And so the people in exile here in, in chapters 40 to 55, the judgment has already occurred. And now the question is, what will God say to them about his plan to restore things back to the way they were? As chapter 40 here, it's the beginning of a new chapter of hope for the people of God. Uh, they were in exile, and they were longing for the advent of God. They were longing for His coming, and they were wrestling with some serious, difficult questions, like, will God break through? Will God still speak to His people? And will He come and rescue His people? And maybe you're in a place right now in your life, maybe you're in a place this morning where you're asking some of these same questions. Will God break through and rescue me from the addictions and the idols that are in my life? Will he still speak to me through his word, though I, every time I sit down to read my Bible, it feels like I'm just banging my head against the wall? Will he come and rescue his people, his church, as the world around us seems to be growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity? Will God give us the strength as his people to continue to live him and to represent him to a lost and dying world. Well, let's go to God's word together and see how a promise spoken to a people in waiting over 2,500 years ago might still speak to us here this morning as we wait for the coming 
coming of our King. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. We'll read the whole chapter. It's printed in your worship guide. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, 
And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, would you come this morning and speak a word of comfort to your people. Lord, we may all be in very different places in our lives this morning, but we trust and we believe that your word will speak to each person where they are, that you will come, that you will comfort us, that you will lift up our eyes as we begin this season of Advent to look to your second coming, to hope in your return, and to trust that you are with us now, even when it seems difficult to believe it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 40 of Isaiah is is a lot to tackle, um, so I'm not going to preach on the whole passage. Uh, I know Bruce and Garrett are really probably sad about that because I'm not going to get to the part about the eagles, Um, but I I had to do that for them. And... uh, as the Packers are getting ready to play the Eagles, you know, I know there's some tension there, but we're just going to look at verses 1 through 11 today. Uh, I would really encourage you guys, uh, you know, maybe later today or this week to spend some time reading, going back over the chapter. Um, really amazing emphasis on the greatness of God and who he is as the creator, uh, greater than, than all the idols of the world. Uh, and we're going to be seeing more in chapters 40 to 55, um, but that's, that's what we're going to focus on today is verses 1 through 11. And uh, for those of you, you kind of bookworms out there who like theology and like to study, this is a great book. It actually was just released a couple weeks ago. It just came in the mail. Uh, the Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom. It's a, it's a biblical theology approach to the book of Isaiah. I think like 40 different books in this whole series. And basically what it's doing is it's taking the theme of the kingdom of God. How does that theme run throughout the whole book of Isaiah? And it's really a, a great way to, to kind of pull it all together. It's been really helpful for me as I've been looking at this chapter specifically. And the title of the sermon is Our, our King is Coming. So we're going to be talking today about Christ as our King and, and God as our King. And, um, and then that's really helpful. So if you're interested, check that out. But we're going to look at this passage here, verses 1 through 11, in, in four different parts. And I'll kind of mention them as we go along. But the, the first part is verses 1 and 2. And we're going to be looking at comfort and peace, the restoration of God's people. Comfort and peace, the restoration of God's people. Verses 1 and 2 says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And this message of comfort was a message 
that was greatly needed. The people have been carried away into exile. They're, they're in Babylon. Again, the temple has been destroyed. And the people are wrestling with these questions of where is God? And here in chapter 40, God breaks his silence. Verse 2 it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The, the, the Hebrew words here are literally, speak to the heart. Um, and, and then it says, cry to her. This word for cry is, is talking about proclaiming or announcing publicly. It's a message that's to go out to everyone, to go out to the whole world. Let it be known uh, that her warfare is ended. And this, this idea... Warfare is, is talking about hardship, the hardship that they've been experiencing in exile. Obviously, they're not really at war because they've been conquered and um, they're not fighting, but they're, they're having a time of hardship. And then her iniquity is pardoned. God is forgiving and restoring his people. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Again, this is just reiterating the fact that God's judgment is complete and that God is coming to forgive and restore his people. And this is really a picture of what God has done for us in Christ in his first advent, in his first coming to this earth. The judgment has been, has been declared and forgiveness has been won and our hardship that we have fought and struggled with. Um, and though you know, we still struggle with sin, we still battle in this life, um, ultimately that hardship is, is over. Uh, the separation between us and God has been removed through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we look back to that. Uh, we look back on the first advent of Christ. And, and this is the good news that we believe in, and it's the good news that we proclaim to the world. Well, the second part of this chapter, of these verses, is preparation and revelation of the king's return. Preparation and revelation of the king's return in verses 3 to 5. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, for us as readers, uh, this transition from chapter 39 to chapter 40 is kind of weird. It's kind of like waking up from a hundred-year dream uh, because we see the events that are happening here in, in 39 and then all of a sudden we're reading about events that are happening over a hundred years later. And I was just thinking about this. Uh, yesterday, my father-in-law was over and we were painting my part of my house and right kind of where you walk in and I was like, I wonder what, you know, if the guy who sold us the house would walk in and see like how we've decorated and painted and all the work we've done, like what he would feel like, like he'd be like, whoa, where am I? Um, and uh, a couple years ago, the, the house that I grew up in was up for sale and the pictures were on the internet and I was with my mom and we were, we were looking at it and uh, like they have just like completely remodeled the the uh, kitchen and dining room and like kind of den area, and literally it looks absolutely nothing like it did when I grew up in it. You know, if you would have, if I would have like woke up in that room, 
and not gone to the rest of the house and kind of seen the structure, I literally would have had no idea where I was. And that's kind of this, that's kind of how it is for the people here. They're kind of, it's like we're waking up in this new land, in this new place, and there's this new message, and everything is kind of foreign and different. Um, you know, we don't really know. I think it's, it's, it's impossible to know what exact access they, the people had during this time to this message of, I, of Isaiah, of the book of Isaiah. Um, you know, there's this, this hundred-year gap. Maybe, you know, maybe some of the people had been reading this during that, that whole time and they'd been passing it on to their children. Um, maybe some people... You know, all these events had been going on, and they went into exile, and they just said, "Oh, we're not even going to we're not even going to read that." Yeah, maybe I re- vaguely remember someone talking about this message of hope that Isaiah gave, but God's not here; He's not with us, and just forget about it. And maybe those people who, you know, ignored those words were sitting there in exile, and then maybe someone you know, stood up to read this, and and they realized, oh, hey, this is, this is where we're at. This is this new place we're in, and God does have a word for us. He does have a message to us. Um, it, either way, however that you know, kind of played out, um, the message was eventually delivered to a people who were in a period of, of wilderness, in a place of wilderness. So there's, there's this, this exile, there's this wilderness that the people of God are experiencing. And this isn't, wasn't the first time, it, it wasn't the last time that there would be this kind of idea of, of exile or captivity. Uh, they experienced it in Egypt and they were brought out. Well, there would be another time, a little over 100 years later, of the release uh, from captivity in Babylon. And this time, uh, the, the maybe silence of the Lord or, or this this feeling of where is God not with us, this time it would last for over 400 years. And what is, what is that? What am I talking about? What's the time between the last written revelation that we have in the Old Testament and the time of the coming of the one who fulfilled these words that we see here in verses 3 to 5? All four gospel writers quote verse 3 here. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. If you're familiar with the birth narrative of Christ and the beginning of the Gospels, this is referring to John the Baptist, who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. He came and he lived in the wilderness of Judea, and he, prepared a mes- he, he proclaimed a message of repentance in order to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. So again, that's the first advent, the King of Kings, that we look back to. Well, what's going on here with this wilderness theme? Why do we see this idea of wilderness? Uh, There's a wilderness going on here as they're in exile. There's wilderness leading up to the time of John the Baptist. Why does God put his people in a time of wilderness? Why do we experience, you know, what we might call like a desert season in our lives, a a dry time, a wilderness time? Why 70 years of exile? Why 400 years of silence? Well, could it be that God is preparing, was preparing his people, that God is preparing us for something greater? Why do we suffer setbacks in our lives? Why do we have to go through things like broken engagements? 
or not being able to have children or not getting the job or the promotion that we want? Why do we have to continually feel like things just aren't going according to my plans and my timeline? Well, could it be that these wilderness experiences are for our good? Could it be that God is preparing us for something greater, for a joy that surpasses the joy that we might experience if we got things that we are longing for in this life? And I think verse 5 here points us in that direction. Listen to what one commentator says about these verses and pay attention to some of these themes here that he's talking about that relate to our Advent themes that we've been talking about. This is about verse 5. The glory of the Lord, therefore, is God himself becoming visible. God bringing his presence down to us. God displaying his beauty before us. The true answer to our deepest longings. And he promises to do this for us. It is the central promise of the gospel. God kept his promise in the hidden glory of Christ's first coming. He continues keep his promise as the Holy Spirit awakens us to the glory of Christ in the gospel. He will consummate his promise at the second coming of Christ. All this is contained in seed form in Isaiah 45. Our part is to have the courage to welcome him with a bold restructuring of our lives. Nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of this hope. He's worth the upheaval. Wow. <laughs> those, are some, those are some strong words, some powerful words. Where are you at this morning? Where are we at as a people? Maybe some of us need a bold restructuring of our lives. We need for God to come and to wonderfully disrupt our plans and our hopes and our dreams and to align us, to align our hearts with his plan. As this commentator says, he's worth the upheaval. And so I ask you this morning, is he? Is he worth the upheaval? Is he worth, is it worth it if he comes and uproots things in your lives and and shakes things up? What if the Lord said to you this morning, I'm going to disrupt all of your plans, all of your dreams, all of your hopes, so that you'll stop living for your own kingdom and that you'll start living for my glory and for my kingdom. Well, last night as I was preparing this, I literally just typed that. Um, What if God comes and disrupts your plan? And there was a knock on my office door and it was Cademan, my son, and comes in and he wanted me to pray for him before bed and I had two choices right I could have been I'm trying to work on my sermon like leave me alone Um, and that's probably what I've done most of the time in the past so I'm not patting myself on the back here for for how I handled it but instead of you know having to have my plan in my way I said all right come in and uh, you know I, I just put a dartboard up in my office and so I hey let's play a game starts quick and and I you know we played and I prayed for him and, and sent him off to bed and you know as I was I, and then I, and I, a while later I go back to my sermon and this is like literally where I was just at I was like oh thank you Lord you know just that little 
reminder that God's plans, even if it's something you know so small as just praying for my son and playing a game of them, God's plans are so much bigger and so much more important than my plans. Well, what about, what about all the little distractions and disruptions that happen in our lives on a day-to-day basis? What if we viewed them as opportunities to glorify the Lord and to spread His glory to other people? Would that change the way we respond in those situations? when we get interrupted from doing the things that we want to do. And, yeah, again, I'm preaching to myself here. This is, this is a huge challenge to say, all right, Lord, it's about you. It's not about me. Come and, and disrupt my plans and, and show me what you're up to. All right, moving on to the third part, uh, verses 6 to 8. Certainty and trustworthiness of God's word. The certainty and trustworthiness of God's word. Verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. These words were an important reminder to a people who needed to hope in something other than their current life situation. Isaiah is told here again to cry or to declare to God's people, remind them that their lives are short. Uh, it you know, seems pretty obvious from, from what was going on that they were, they were probably not living with an eternal perspective. They had their gaze too firmly fixed on the current hardships that they were experiencing and that they had been enduring in exile. But the Lord contrasts the the temporal nature of our lives here with the eternal nature of his word, that it is trustworthy and that it is certain and that it stands forever. There have been many efforts uh, throughout history to destroy the Bible. I'm just going to point out two of them. In 303 AD, the emperor Diocletian, he pronounced an edict, uh, an edict against the Christians. This edict was published in Rome, across the Roman Empire, and it ordered the destruction of of churches, of places of worship, uh, of the scriptures, and it prohibited Christians from assembling together for worship. Um, that lasted for 10 years until 313 when Constantine took over and legalized Christianity. So Diocletian's attempt to to wipe Christianity out and destroy the Bible, uh, it ultimately backfired and Christianity became legalized in the Roman Empire. Uh, Another attempt uh, to destroy Christianity and to destroy the Bible happened in the place where I used to live uh, in China in the late 40s and early 50s when the Communist Party took over. Um, They went through the country and systematically destroyed churches. Uh, They killed pastors and priests. Uh, They actually also destroyed Buddhist temples and they're trying to wipe out kind of all religion, but uh, there was really an effort to wipe out Christianity. Uh, Bibles were were confiscated and destroyed and 
Uh, if you've read you know, any stories, maybe like Voice of the Martyrs or different things about persecution in China, you've probably read, there's some really amazing stories out there. I mean, walking backwards through the snow uh, to not be traced and carrying, you know, they would, they would tear their Bibles into, into many parts and have them around in, in different places and different fellowships so that if the authorities came, they wouldn't be able to confiscate all the Bibles, um, which interestingly, that eventually led to some kind of weird heresies because people only had portions of, of the scriptures. But through all of that, God still preserved his church. Uh, the church was forced underground and it really exploded and grew. And again, another kind of irony here, uh, China today is actually the largest uh, distrib- or printer and distributor of Bibles in the whole world. So um, you know, I think that, that points to just this effort of, of people to destroy God's word to, you know, again, even if it's, it's not actually physically destroying Bibles, but just to discredit God's word and say, oh, you know, this isn't reliable. God's word continues uh, to stand, and it will stand forever. So these, these wilderness experiences that the people of God have been experiencing are no accident. Uh, it's through them that God reveals himself and shows his faithfulness and preserves his word. So again, if you're, if you're struggling today, if you're going through a time of wilderness, God's word is is sure. God's word is certain and is trustworthy. And you can, and I encourage you to, to go to his word, even if it's hard, even if times are dry, and trust that he's going to speak to you through his word. Well, the fourth part, fourth and final part, is power and tenderness of God's ruling. Power and tenderness of God's ruling. We see this in verses 9 to 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This uh, beginning here in, um, in verses 9, O Zion, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Uh, this, this word here for herald is where we get the Greek word that we translate as evangelize or evangelist. God is calling Zion calling Jerusalem a herald of good news, an evangelist who is to go up on a mountain and to proclaim to the world the good news. And and again, we're gonna we've kind of seen it a little bit through the first part of Isaiah, this this message for the whole world, message for the nations. That's really gonna start to ramp up here as we go through the rest of Isaiah and as we as we kind of wrap up the book, it's, you're gonna see this message of salvation for the nations. And Jerusalem was to be the place where that was to go out from. And we actually even see that in the book of Acts, that the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So there's a message to declare. It's a message of good news that the king is coming. Um, Isaiah doesn't actually use the word king here, but I think that's kind of the idea. He uses the word Lord God, which is a combination of the word Adonai, and Yahweh, uh, which elsewhere in Isaiah, it 
he says, Lord God of hosts, uh, the, the God of heaven's armies, the God of hosts, the king, the Lord God comes with might. And this is a statement of God's sovereignty, his power. And the NIV translates this uh, Lord God here, the sovereign Lord. So it's the, it's the God who's, who's the ruler, who's the king, who's in control of all things. And then verse 10 here is a, a beautiful description of his power. It says that he comes with might, his arm rules for him, behold his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. These are, these are words that are related to God's power and his powerful ruling. But it's not just power that God is going to come with. He's also going to come with tenderness. And we see that in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He is a tender shepherd who will lead his people. This is what the people of God needed after 70 years of exile in Babylon. This is what the people of God needed after 400 silent years. This is the answer to the question, to the questions, will God break through? Will God still speak? And will God come and save his people? This is what the world got in Christ. In his first coming, it was not a display of earthly might that the Jews were expecting in the Messiah. They thought that a king, an earthly king, would come and would rule. Instead, he came as a tender shepherd. So this promise here is pointing forward to the first coming of Christ. But his second coming will be a display of power and might. He will come as a king, a powerful king, and a shepherd. He will come as a shepherd who will separate sheep from the goats, those who trust in him and put their hope in him from those who don't. But it's not going to be this meek and mild, tender coming like his first coming was. This, these verses here are a picture of what our Savior would do um, and who he would be. And as we, as we go through this Advent season, this is a helpful reminder for us, a helpful picture for us of the lion and the lamb. The, the one who will come again in power, but who is with us now as, as a tender shepherd. And maybe, you know, maybe you're in a place this morning where you need Christ to come to you as a tender shepherd. Maybe you're in a place of brokenness. You kind of you know, look like a, a lamb that's just hobbling along with on, on three legs, you're, you're beat down, you're, you're broken. Maybe you need him to come and bind up your broken heart. Maybe you need to experience him as a lamb. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you need to experience him a little bit as a lion. Uh, maybe you need him to come. Maybe there needs to be some upheaval in your life. Uh, maybe... You know, maybe you're, you're running, uh, maybe you're, you're willfully disobeying the Lord, you're, you're going your own way, you're chasing after idols, you're doing things that you know are not pleasing to Him. 
and maybe you, you need to ask him <laughs> to come. Again, it's not, we don't separate these out completely. Come as a line. Bring, bring judgment, Lord. Remind me of, of my sin. But, but then bind me up as a, as a gentle shepherd. And that's, that's, that's who he is. That's how he, he deals with us. And so I'd encourage you, you know, wherever you're at on that spectrum, um, to go to him and, and ask him to, to deal with you in that way. But wherever you're at, know that, that Christ is sufficient. Know that he knows your needs and he knows your struggles better than you do. What he asks of you is to surrender your life to him. To lay down your desires, to lay down your dreams, and let him be the king over your life. Well, just to recap here, again, verses 1 to 39, the part of the book we've already looked at, that's, that's past, it's looking back. We're kind of in this present time here, verses 40, or chapters 40 to 55. And then future, future looking is chapters 56 to 66, which again we'll get in in the new year. So we find ourselves in the present, looking back to the past of Christ's first advent, but we always have that expectant eye looking forward to his second coming as we wait. I want to close uh, with a quote from the book that I shared with you, uh, the book about God's kingdom. I think this really kind of captures these ideas of advent that we've been talking about. It captures this past, present, and future kind of theme. So hear this quote from... Uh, Andrew Abernethy. While we can certainly profess that Isaiah's gospel, the good news that God will come, is made true in Jesus, the complete manifestation of God's glorious presence awaits its full realization when Christ comes again. In the meantime, however, the church may be said through the Spirit to be partakers of the glory that is to be revealed in Christ the King as we wait for the appearing of the chief shepherd. So church, this morning and the rest of this week and the rest of our lives, let this be true of us. Let us be a people who wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that we can look back to this word that was spoken long, long ago to a people in exile. A message of hope that was given that pointed them forward to a day when you would come and rescue your people. And God, we are here today in this world, our, our lives, it's, it's a time of, of exile in this world, a time of not being in our true home. And as we look forward, as we anticipate the day when you will come again, let that encourage us. Let that motivate us to live for you. To be those who go up on a mountain and, and say and proclaim the good news. Who announce the message of your coming to the world around us. Equip us, Lord. Send us out to be your ambassadors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.